The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we speak to Ashley Van Houten. Yeah, the muscle maven and author of the new book, It Takes Guts. Oh, and we're going to talk about organ meats, brains, heart, kidney, liver, eyeballs. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. Eyeballs? It's a delicacy in some countries, isn't it? Yeah, I guess I, I guess it is an organ. So organ meat. Yeah. It fits. Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you? I'm doing so well today. Living my best life, of course. Wow. Awesome. Welcome to the lab report. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, Uh specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics. And today, we're going to talk to the muscle maven herself, Ashley Van Houten. I'm super psyched. Yeah, me too. We're kind of fans of hers. We sort of cyberstalk her, just as a side note. You know, speaking of cyberstalking, so my son has figured out how to, like actually do things on the phone oh my goodness so he's beginning to text people oh i know he's texted me actually yeah he's like what one yeah yeah i've received texts yeah (laughs) (laughs) and the the autocorrect is always interesting with those too right well if your son can work texts maybe he can make his way over to itunes and maybe subscribe to this podcast rate and review download (laughs) because i haven't (laughs) (laughs) perhaps i'm just saying and maybe we can encourage all of our listeners to do the same you know what else we got what we have an email address. We certainly do. It's podcast at gdx.net. That's where you can send your questions of the day, mm-hmm. any sort of insight, feedback, positive or negative. We like we, we check it all out and we'll always respond. That's so right. Thank you for those. Yep. And so send those along. You know, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Without further ado, we should probably just... Oh, let's call our special guest today. Because no one wants a do, right? No, there's too there's much ado yeah. just everywhere. A do overload. Yeah. There's much ado about nothing, <laughs> oftentimes... And there's just well, without further ado, let's call Ashley Van Houten. So, Patty. Yeah. Today. Yeah, I know. Ashley Van Houten. I know. I'm so excited. Right? I know. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about Ashley in case you're unfamiliar for some reason. <laughs> Ashley is an author, speaker, podcast host, and self-proclaimed muscle nerd. Her first book, a nose-to-tail organ meat-centric cookbook called It Takes Guts, is available for pre-order now and will be in stores October 20th. She's the host of the Muscle Maven Radio podcast, interviewing some of the leading minds in exercise and nutrition methodology and overall wellness. She is a longtime contributor to Paleo Magazine, and Ashley is also a consultant in the fitness industry, helping others build their brand and communicate their messages to the world, working with notable figures like legendary Canadian bodybuilder and life optimization guru Ben Pakulski and thyroid health expert L. Russ. In her downtime, Ashley is a nationally ranked natural figure competitor and also dabbles in powerlifting, arm wrestling, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, although her biggest hobby is trying to convince people to eat organ meat. Right? And, and with, with that, that <laughs> welcome to the Lab Report, Ashley. Thank you for coming. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm pumped to chat with you guys. And I just, I love that the bio always makes you sound so much cooler than you actually are. I love it. I don't know. I think we're going to find out you're fairly cool, actually. That's for sure. But but we know you're a fitness consultant and a well-known speaker and a podcaster and a writer and an author. But let's start with just, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about where your drive for fitness came from? Hmm. Okay. Uh, The drive, I guess came from probably a million little things. I I don't really have sort of that light bulb moment that I think a lot of people do um, that that kind of spurred on their fitness or wellness trajectory. I think it's just as long as I uh, can remember, I've really gravitated towards strength in all forms. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've, I've really just been drawn to displays of strength. I've always loved muscles. I, you know, I had older brothers, so I grew up watching Um, American gladiators, wrestling, you know, world's strongest man and, you Uh know, Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) in in every way that he exists. And so I just kind of always, I always was drawn to what the human body was capable of. And I always kind of loved that very overt physical showing off display of strength. I just kind of was, I was attracted to it. And so as I got older and um, got into school and, and sports and things like that, I didn't really, until I was probably out of university, think of myself really as athletic because, huh. you know, I, I got into volleyball or soccer or whatever my parents would put me in sure. to make sure that I was socializing <laughs> yeah. or whatever. Right. But I, I wasn't really like a ball sports person. I wasn't really like a team sport person so much. And so I kind of just thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm meant to observe and, and enjoy, right. um, you know, watching these kinds of things. And yeah. then it wasn't until I, I started experiencing some other ways of being fit that I realized like, actually, maybe I am an athlete. Maybe I do love this. Maybe I do have some aptitude or at least passion for it. And things like that were stuff like CrossFit, which I got into like in the relatively early days, sort of the 2008 Mm -hmm. um, timeline in CrossFit when things were, you know, when the gyms were still dirty and gross and and (laughs) people were still, I don't know, uh, you know, early on in in the trajectory. And And that was a really transformative moment for me because as someone who was always in the gym, like I was working out in the gym from age 16 on. um, And again, we're not talking decades and decades ago, but still, even when I was in high school, you know, in the early 2000s, I guess, um, there weren't as there wasn't the same community for women in the gym as there is now. Certainly like right. these mm-hmm. days you go to a globo gym and there's more women than men and they're, they're barbell squatting and they're crushing mm-hmm. heavy weights and they're doing all kinds of cool things. Whereas yeah. maybe back then it, it wasn't quite the same sort of environment. Yeah. Um, but I was always doing that stuff. And when I got into CrossFit and I saw what women were capable of on a micro level, it wasn't just, okay, the top athletes can do this. It was like, no, you can do this. You can Mm -hmm. come in here and do pull-ups and you can deadlift twice your body weight and you can make progress every day and learn things every day. And it's so empowering. And I, I recognized from an early age too, that a lot of really intrinsic, true confidence comes from not being the best or not being the best looking or not, you know, being the skinniest or whatever. It's from having a real deep sense of your own competency in, in things. And mm-hmm. that can be your work or your relationships or things that you're doing in the gym. Um, and so I just saw a lot of the good that came out of strength training for women um, in terms of just literally building strength, building confidence, looking good, all of these great things that come from it. 
And, and from that, I kind of just kept meandering along through things like powerlifting and bodybuilding and, and just sort of taking the things that I enjoyed and loved and learned from each of them and, and continuing to build my own kind of personal um, passion for fitness and, and learning about it and then sharing what I'm learning with other people. And that's how the kind of confluence of the work that I do and the stuff that I was doing for fun kind of came together. And that's mm-hmm. that the result of that, of course, is the podcast and um Everything that I do really for work is about learning about being happy and healthy and strong and sharing that with other people. So that's, that's kind of how it, how it all happened. Yeah. I I love that. I mean, the insight that you have around, um, how competency create leads, breeds confidence, Mm -hmm. um, and how that's especially important for, for all people, of course, but maybe that's something that's, uh, even a little bit more unique for women who are engaging in CrossFit. Right. It's like literally and figuratively empowering them. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, on, Another front, you're also a primal blueprint certified health coach and you speak and motivate people on achieving a primally aligned lifestyle. Um, We've had Mark Sisson on, so we know we're a little bit familiar with the primal blueprint, but can you speak to what you mean when you talk about a primally aligned lifestyle and how that's unique from maybe other approaches? Mm-hmm. Um, Uncle Mark is the best, by the way. <laughs> he, was, he is sweet. We loved him. <laughs> Love that guy. Um, so for me, and I think one of the things, you know, looking at some of the things that we're going to discuss today, and I just got to like get it out once because I understand that it can be frustrating to people that so often the answer first and foremost has to be, it depends, you know, and then I continue on and kind of talk right. about what I believe, right? Um, but I think that it's only fair to to always kind of have that caveat because if we're talking about ketosis or paleo or weightlifting or muscle building or whatever, yeah. there are just so many factors that go into how you or how I or how someone else are, are going to approach that that goal or that, that plan that we have. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think with the primal lifestyle, the ancestral health lifestyle at its most basic, it's about, um, trying to honor and, and, um, encourage the way our bodies have always been, how they are meant to be, how they are still wired to be and thrive and try to make that fit in as best we can into the actual modern reality that we're, we're living in. Right. Because Mm -hmm. as you've probably heard before, like our, our life, our technology, our community, our environments are changing more than exponentially. We can't even barely get our head around how quickly these things are changing, but our actual body and physiology and our brain and the way we digest food and the way we, our bodies look and move, that's really not changing a whole lot Mm -hmm. um, at its, at its most basic. So we have to try to find this way to kind of make them both uh, balance, you know? And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. Some of, some of that, to me, means continuing to honor the things that we've always done that we can still do that are these basic lifestyle tenets that, uh, that are the sort of building block for health. And that's for everybody. So again, we can talk about tweaks and specific diets and specific workout protocols for different people, but there are some sort of some basic concepts that just work for everybody um, and are the great uh, sort of building blocks. And those are things like getting good sleep, um, movement, however that looks to you, daily consistent movement, um, being outdoors when you can, stress management and relationships, healthy eating, right? So these are like basic building blocks that we all talk about, but we also all kind of 
sometimes ignore because they're hard work and they're like not fun to think <laughs> right. about. But the reality is like, you got to keep going back to the, these no matter what. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so that's really what it is. It's like trying to create a lifestyle where those are always present, where those are always prioritized, but they also aren't chores. Like, okay, I got to wake up and make sure that I do X, Y, Z or else I'm failing. It's just, this is what I do in a day. I make sure that I nourish my body. I make sure that I get outside and walk around. I make sure that I connect with people and I uh, spend some time alone if I'm stressed out and I manage that. Like these are kind of things that you just want to build into your life. Mm -hmm. Um, And then from a nutritional standpoint, because I talk all the time about how there's like more fads and clickbait about nutrition online than anyone can ever hope to click on in a a lifetime. And I understand why people get jaded because the next thing they hear, it's like, oh, carnivore now. Now I just have to eat meat. Like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I can't keep up with it. And people people get jaded about the paleo thing too, because that's a a big um, quote unquote trend that kind of people think came out of nowhere 20 years ago. And now you're selling paleo trail mix at Whole Foods or whatever. And so I I get that people think like, okay, this is just another one of those trends. Mm -hmm. I'm not buying into it. But if you can get over the, the, the marketing, you can get over the name. Um, What it means is to eat as unprocessed a diet as possible um, to eat food that is as local, natural, seasonal, um, and again, ingredient list free as possible sure. whenever you can. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, I think that it just makes the most sense. Like keto is going to work for people. Carnivore is going to work for people. Maybe vegan's going to work for people. But the idea of just eating real food combination of plants and animals um, that work for you, that you digest, that give you energy, that don't come out of a box, that don't last four years on a on a grocery shelf. Yeah. It just makes the most sense as a starting point for me. And so that's why that is the basic platform that I always recommend to everybody. And then you sort of tweak and, and personalize from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because we it's an ongoing joke on our podcast. It depends is really the answer to just about everything we talk about <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. But then, <laughs> but then the second part of that is you're talking about the ancestral or the primal blueprint. And you're right. The world is evolving very rapidly. And given all of these modern day stressors that we're dealing with in this day and age, it can be really difficult for some people to maintain these healthy habits. So what advice do you give to people that you're working with on helping them to deal with stress and its impact on their motivation? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big one. And I mean, that's a, that's a lifelong uh, task and journey and and challenge for sure for everyone. Um, And I don't care what guru you look up to. It's a challenge for them as well. Um, And if they say it's not, they're probably lying to you. Um, (laughs) But I think that one of the things that I think would be helpful for a lot of people is to reframe the concept of motivation as the most um, exciting and important part of making a life change because motivation, and this is like, this is science. This isn't just, just me saying this, that Mm -hmm. motivation is a fleeting thing that comes and goes, you know, just like your, your energy and your moods and all of these things, they come and go, they are not consistent. And it certainly isn't consistently high, no matter how uh, strongly you care about something. Right. Right. So to rely primarily on motivation as being the thing that will carry you over the finish line, you are already setting yourself up for unrealistic expectations. So my kind of idea is to, first of all, help people um, 
understand the concept of you're doing this for the long haul. This isn't going to happen tomorrow and it's probably not going to happen in a week Mm -hmm. and reframing that idea as, okay, I've got this huge undertaking that I have to do, or I'm going to be unhealthy and it's going to take me forever and it's miserable. And this is my life now Mm -hmm. to reframe it as this is my life. This is, I get to do this. I get to learn about myself. I get to learn about my health. I get to improve it. I get to try things and this is what my life is. And that's exciting. And that's fun because I'm learning things. And so when you look at it that way, instead of, okay, I just have to do this three month health plan so that I can get to that end goal. And then there I am. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not it. That's not how it works. It's not how it works for anybody. Um, So it's sort of like a reframing that takes some time. um, But I think that if people, and usually if people have done enough of those three month things where you crash and burn, or it works for six months, and then it stops working and whatever, people will start to get to that point where they recognize like, what you're saying is a lot, but it's true. Like there is no quick fix. So let's start thinking about how to make this my life instead of like an end goal that I have to get to. Um, yeah. yeah. And then it's, it's just the idea of progressive small changes turning into bigger things. I mean, everybody who's had a success in their life, everyone who's had a win knows that it's not just you do one big thing one day and your success comes. It's about doing a lot of little things over and over and over again. And gradually you, you start to see changes that become consistent and they become long lasting. And that enables you to make more changes that, that take you up another notch. And that's, again, that's just how it works. It's the one step after the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And so essentially it's just like giving people the real truth and then yeah. helping them to see it in more of a positive um exciting light rather than, Oh, this is what I have to do now. And it's not going to be over anytime soon. Reframing. I love it. Yeah. I like that distinction too. And and what you said about motivation being something that waxes and wanes and is not, not necessarily the thing you want to be relying on. I guess, you know, my next thought comes to discipline and really it's about what you're talking about reframing so that you can build that discipline, that, that moment to moment, that day to day muscle, Mm -hmm. um, so to speak. And, you know, I think a, a lot of our, audiences, functional medicine physicians who are at their core working with their patients for positive behavior change. And, you know, one of the things is like, (laughs) I think in our patient population, exercise and movement is like one of those things where it's like, you know, it can be a little bit of a and Why are you looking at me, Michael? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> it can be, it can be a struggle. So like, how, how do you go about helping them to reframe, especially the movement, the exercise part of it? Yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, I think one of the things that I have done for myself and also the people that I've worked with is helping people find what works for them. Because again, just like uh, diet protocols, as far as physical movement protocols, no one thing is the answer for everybody. So if you, again, spend too much time on social media and think that you have to do Pilates every day to look good, but you hate Pilates, Mm -hmm. like, guess what? You're setting yourself (laughs) up for problems, right? Right, right. Um, And so I think it's taking the time to find out what kind of movement makes you feel good, makes you feel strong, makes you feel energized. And something that you look forward to doing every day is a big part of it. Um, And that's going to look different for everybody. I also think that um, hammering home the concept of consistent movement over 
the details is more important because one thing I've I've had to learn and come to terms with during the pandemic is that I couldn't work out the way that I normally did. Um, and some days getting a nice brisk walk-in for an hour was all I could do and that's okay. And in some cases that's better. Like mm-hmm. my taking the time to do a reset for myself, not being in the gym and like crushing bodybuilding workouts every day actually was probably good for me for a Mm -hmm. while. Mm -hmm. And it meant that when I got to go back to the gym, I was like really excited and really happy to be there and really paying attention to what I was doing. Um, but yeah, you don't have to beast yourself. You don't have to do a workout that you hate because other people tell you it's the most effective thing. It's consistency over time. It's effort it's um, attention. So that's the other thing. If you're going to the gym and you've got the best workout plan in the world and you're half assing it and you're on your phone, guess mm-hmm. what? Like you're also not going to see the results that you want. Right. So one of the things I've, I've learned when I went back to the gym after this long period off of reflection and long walks is mm-hmm. going back and checking my ego, bringing the weights down, bringing the, um, the like sets and reps and volume down and instead focusing on being absolutely present and focused on every bit of every second of every rep. Um, and just kind of starting again, kind of from the ground up of focus, focus and intensity and effort over how many sets of reps did I do? How heavy a weight did I do? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, again, it, it kind of goes back to finding the thing that, that works for you, finding the thing that you like, and then, putting your focus and intensity and effort there, uh, I think is a great starting point. But, you know, I, I tell people like people just starting out who are recovering from injury, who are, um, overweight versus Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. you can all benefit from going for a walk. Just go out and go for a walk. Anything, yeah. Be happy for yeah. it. Take some nice deep breaths, look around you, be happy, walk, walk yeah. more is like number one. I love it. I love it. And, you know, on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about different diets, ketogenic, plant-based, paleo, carnivore. We've had them all. And I'm sure this is going to be in that same vein of it depends. But (laughs) from the standpoint of, yeah, (laughs) for someone like you who who works with clients who try to maximize their physical fitness, do you have a specific dietary approach that you recommend or does it depend? I like, I like that you did the disclaimer for me. So I just, <laughs> it, it depends. Um, I mean, so I don't generally work with, um, plant-based individuals because I just think if you're, if you're pretty stuck on the idea of going plant-based, you can find somebody else who aligns with that, that, mm-hmm. that you can work with. I have actually worked with, um, amazingly enough, uh, a vegetarian who is also a friend. So that's like two double whammies that I managed to like work with and we still like each other. So I was really proud of Score. that. But, um, yeah, it's, it's tough, but I, um, so what I, I, again, always kind of generally do, like I said earlier, is I, if I'm going to work with a client and they're open-minded and they're willing to, uh, listen to my advice and try it out is start with a very broad paleo approach, which again, usually for most people means, um, getting rid of a lot of, um, processed foods and like insidious kind of little things that you don't even notice kind of processed foods. Like a lot of people will say, I eat tons of plants and, and veg or vegetables and meat, but then they're also kind of like drinking Coke three or four times a day or whatever. And that's their one thing. And so it's just sort of like cutting out the, the, um, extras that aren't 
serving you that aren't helping you is generally like kind of a starting point. And then um, from there, working on getting people to eat as unprocessed as possible, Mm -hmm. protein first, always. I'm a very strong, passionate advocate of the importance of protein over everything. So we love, we love talking about macronutrients, right? In in this industry, everyone's either pro carbs or pro fat, but I think that the conversation should probably be steered more towards protein first. And then we can talk about those other two after because it's the most important one. Mm -hmm. And I do find that um, working mostly with female clients, uh, I'm shocked because again, this isn't a part of my personal world, but I'm shocked at how little protein um, Mm -hmm. a lot of women are eating. And while they're trying to gain muscle, um, which is a, a very huge undertaking. So getting people getting their heads around, you know, eating uh, enough protein, more protein. um, And then we kind of tweak from there. And I I am not 100% paleo. I am not zero carb. I have painstakingly over the last decade, done a lot of work uh, and experimentation with myself to figure out what works for me, Mm -hmm. what tools I can use for um, achieving what ends when I want to eat carbs, what carbs I eat. And that's, that's been a ton of work. So Mm. um my diet is very individual and the clients that I work with, their diets will be individual too. But I always say kind of starting point is get your protein sorted out, mm-hmm. cut, cut the extra kind of crap for the most part that you just know isn't helping you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we kind of, kind of tweak from there. Yeah. Like it. That's, it makes a lot of sense in it. I mean, we're talking now moving into kind of this idea of optimization of body composition and the ability to put on muscle. So I was going to ask a couple questions around on that. Um, as it relates to protein, what we were just talking about, we've had conversations about what's the right amount. And, you know, some people say like 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. And I don't know if, uh, you have like a, an overall goal target that you're shooting for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, again, for me personally, and we can, you know, there will be some variance in this, and this isn't a prescription for everybody, but sure. I think a good rule of thumb generally tends to be uh, one gram of protein per pound of lean body mass. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, can be adjusted if you um, are trying to actively gain muscle versus maintain versus, you know, if you have a ton of weight to lose, um, that can be adjusted a little bit. But I like personally, the what was it 0.8 per kilogram, like I think about how much protein that is. And that makes me super sad. Yeah. Uh, um, that's not a lot of protein. So yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, for me, like I've done the sort of like the in body tests or whatever that tell me how much my lean body uh, mass is, and I go based on that. So I might be anywhere from like 110 to 115 grams of protein a day for me. Um, and maybe I up it a little bit if I'm uh, trying to put on some muscle, if I'm training for a bodybuilding competition, if I'm doing things like that. And it can vary. There are some days maybe I only get 100 grams, maybe there's some days I get 150. But generally speaking, having that sort of ballpark one gram per pound of lean, um, body mass is, is a good starting point, I think for a lot of people. See, and there you have it, Michael, straight from the mouth of the muscle maven. That's right. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But I've heard you, you know, we've had Rachel Gregory on the show and we've heard you on her podcast as well. And there was an episode you guys talked about fasting. Do you do intermittent fasting at all? Or was that just an experiment that you tried? Yeah, it's funny because I don't know if you guys saw like this recent, like the recent news that now it's like now fasting's bad and everyone's like, oh, what can I believe? <laughs> right, Anyone, right. Have you seen this? Yeah. Um, so again, I think that fasting is a tool. So just like carnivore and keto, which people like to 
get excited about and adopt and make it part of their personality or part of their identity, it's mm-hmm. a it's a tool. Mm-hmm. It can work for some people. Sometimes for some circumstances, it doesn't have to work for everyone all the time, every day for every reason. So for me, I like, I know, for example, that when the pandemic started and we were all really confined to our house and freaked out and nobody knew what was going on for those first couple of months, I, I, um, started doing intermittent fasting in a much more regimented way than I ever had before. And that was to combat, emotional eating. It was to combat the fact that I had suddenly reduced my daily um, movement Mm, and energy requirements significantly. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was really a calculated response to what was going on with my body and my life. And Mm -hmm. so what I did, I normally eat probably three or four times a day, spread out pretty intuitively as what per when I'm hungry. But I mean, I was eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack. And so what I did was I pushed my my eating window um, from say, I don't know, nine to eight every day to sort of like 12 to seven. Mm -hmm. And I did it relatively effortlessly. It worked at the time because again, I just wasn't moving a whole lot. We weren't really doing much. Um, and it worked really well. And then there came a a period some months later where things were starting to happen again. And I started going to the gym again and I started adjusting what I was eating. Um, and I didn't have any feelings about that. I didn't have any feelings like I was failing or like I was, I don't know, giving up on something. I used that tool when it worked for me. And when it doesn't work anymore, I stop using it. Um, I've also, one of my kind of big goals over the last few years was achieving, and this is something, of course, Rachel talks about a lot, mm-hmm. is this concept of metabolic flexibility, which yep. I think is, yep. again, much more important than any one particular way of eating because it's about building a strong, resilient body, digestive system, immune system, all of these things where you can kind of roll with the punches, where you can adjust and be flexible and do things um, depending on your current situation instead of, okay, I'm really good at fasting now, but if I stop fasting, I'm a mess or I'm really good at at being keto, but if I eat some carbs for a treat, I'm all messed up for Mm -hmm. days. You know, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. it's a much more practical and and helpful um, goal to sort of aim for this resilience where your body can kind of manage to an extent whatever you throw at it. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that I've really worked hard to do so that if I feel like fasting for 24 hours, um, I can do that and I'm not having a headache and I'm not screaming at my partner because I'm hangry um, <laughs> and I can do that and it'll feel good and I still have energy. Or if I go a week where I want to eat keto because there's no carbs in the house and I'm not feeling it, I can do that and it's great. And then I have some days where I want to have a snack and I'm eating more carbs and that's fine and my body can manage it. That has is the goal that I was working on for the longest time, but I think for the most part I've achieved it, but it took, it took again, work and experimentation and sort of playing with um, fasting and how that worked for me and playing with being low carb and, and becoming fat adapted and understanding how that felt. And, yeah. um, yeah, it's, it's a process, but I think that that's a, a great sort of goal for anybody to, to work towards. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, and another question, you know, we talk a lot about the differences and the tricky balance between anabolic physiology and catabolic physiology. And one of the things that factors into that is the, the consequences that come with overtraining and the, the lack of, uh, of, recovery. So how do you evaluate whether somebody's maybe on that edge with overtraining? Mm-hmm. Um, 
hey guys, it depends. <laughs> um, okay, so the the signs of overtraining for me, I'm just speaking again from my own personal experience, from clients that I've worked with, and also just talking to and, and learning from super smart people. Um, but for me, some of the bigger signs of overtraining are things like. Um, being sore all the time. If you're sore all the time, you are either working too hard or you're not recovering enough. And ultimately that kind of amounts to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you do something different, you do a crazy extra hardcore workout on a weekend and you're sore for a couple of days, fine. But if you're sore after every workout and you're sore between every workout, you're working too hard. Mm-hmm. Um, if your motivation to go to the gym or to work out changes and is essentially gone, that's a really big sign. Like I know I've had a couple periods in my life where, cause the gym is a constant for me. I love it. It's my happy place. I love to go and be sweaty and grow out and have a good time mm-hmm. and lift some weights. And when I don't feel like doing that for more than like a day in a row, like I know that I'm overdoing it. Like that's, if you, if you suddenly dread the thing that you love or that mm. you have passion in, that's yep. a very good sign that you're really kind of overdoing it. Um, and also, I mean, things like plateaus too. So if, and this goes for nutrition too, if something that has worked for you for a really long time suddenly stops working, it's a good chance to step back and reevaluate like plateaus happen and they're okay. And it usually means that you need to adjust something, but in a lot of cases, people adjust in favor of doing more, working harder, going harder when that Mm. isn't necessarily always Hmm. the case. And one thing that I find especially tricky for, and again, for women, and that's not to say all women, and it's not to say men don't have this issue too, but one unique thing that I find when I'm talking to women clients who are looking to improve their strength, improve their um, muscle uh, with the gym is that there's two almost conflicting major issues. And one of the issues is that they never take time to recover and they work too hard and go to the gym all the time and never take a break. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things. The other thing being when they are in the gym, they aren't working hard enough. And so Mm -hmm. this sounds conflicting and weird, but I'll kind of try to try to explain it a little bit more. When I was doing some of these workshops over the last couple of months, one with Rachel, one with another friend of mine, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, and we were working with a lot of um, women clients and we were posing questions like, do you have a harder time getting to the gym regularly or finding time to relax and recover and recharge? And unsurprisingly, everybody was like, no time to recover, never any time to recover. <laughs> right, right. And of course I'm saying like, are you kidding me guys? Like if you have time to go do an hour long CrossFit workout every day, you absolutely have time to recover. You're just not prioritizing it right. because people just have a very hard time. And I've been there too. So again, this isn't me like speaking to everybody else. Like I have all the answers I've been there, but people have a really hard time, like fully internalizing and understanding the concept that the recovery period is when you're actually getting stronger. Mm -hmm. Like the workout time Mm -hmm. is when you're breaking your muscles down. It's when you're beating your body down and it's the recovery period that is just as crucial that allows your body to rebuild stronger, to repair itself and to recover. And we just don't give ourselves that time because I I don't know why, I guess, again, because it's not as sexy as going to the gym and and sweating for an hour, Mm -hmm. but those things are 
linked. They need to happen together. Yeah. Um, so there's that part that's that's really frustrating. I'm like, guys, just take a break. Go take a hot bath. <laughs> like, come on. Right. So there's that side. But then there's the other side where a lot of these same women are saying, yeah, okay, I'll go to the gym and I'll sweat. But like, I really don't want to lift these heavy weights. Like I just, it looks kind of scary. It looks kind of masculine. I'm worried about getting too big. And so I'm like, now you're spending all this time in the gym, possibly doing chronic cardio that's going to affect your hormones and metabolism in a negative way, or at the at the least of it, you're kind of just wasting your time because you're in there lifting 10-pound weights for an hour and not breaking a sweat. Mm-hmm. And so it's also another reframing where that we just, I think it just is enough women um, consistently just hammering home, like you're not going to get bulky guys. Like it just doesn't happen. Like enough right. people saying it will eventually change people's um, learned misconceptions. Cause look, we've been taught this forever. So it's going right. to take a while to, to unlearn it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that again, finding this sort of uh, balance between when you're in the gym, work your ass off. And mm-hmm. when you're not in the gym, relax. Right. Like don't, don't sort of be half in and half out of it all the time, because that is a recipe for like metabolic dysfunction and stress and misery. Just right. when you're there, be all there, give it everything you have. And when you're not there, just chill out. I That's love it. it. I love that. That's profound. And that you can generalize that to other it's, areas it's so of true. life too. Right. That's so true. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Ashley, I want to get to the heart of the matter here. You wrote okay. this I- awesome book, I see what you nice pun. Nice pun. Ah, like <laughs> <laughs> Let's get to the guts of this interview. <laughs> so it. you wrote this new book called It Takes Guts. And Michael and I are sitting here because the subtitle is A Meat Eater's Guide to Eating Awful with Over 75 Healthy and Delicious Nose-to-Tail Recipes. And we're looking at the word awful, O-F-F-A-L. And to be completely honest, we had to look it up. That's true. We didn't know yep. this word. Yeah. And so sure. can you talk a little bit about this book? First of all, what's awful? And number two, what inspired you to write this book? Okay. So guys, you're going to have to stop me at some point. I can talk forever on this one. I know, you know, this podcast can't be four hours long, so I'll try to, I'll really try to keep it concise, but so awful is a somewhat unfortunate, uh, term for organ meat. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so basically what the, the gist of the book is, is talking about and sort of opening up the conversation around the health and sustainability and ethics and, um, all of the other kind of positive benefits of eating a truly nose to tail diet Mm -hmm. and nose to tail has been a little bit of a buzzword for the past little while. It's, you know, restaurants use it to talk about healthy meat and stuff like that, but Mm -hmm. we aren't really, we aren't, most of us aren't really living that life, you know, because nose to tail really does mean kind of making use of every part of the animal um, that we're eating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the book isn't trying to convince vegans of anything. The book is trying to, just sort of open a conversation, educate, talk about things, talk about options for the vast majority of us who do still eat animals. We do still consider that, or at least tolerate and accept the fact that a healthy human diet involves both plant and animal foods. Because again, the vast majority of us still do that. There is a certainly a growing um, community um, that is plant-based and they also have great marketing. So it's, it seems like it's out there kind of louder maybe than you think. But mm-hmm. if we look at uh, on a micro level, most of us are still eating animal foods on some level um, because again, we recognize on a deep, deep level that that is what we need to, to be healthy. So if we have accepted the fact that we are a part of the natural world and the natural life cycle rather than separate and above it, um, we can start to, instead of turning away from 
feedlot factory farming that is problematic from cruel and inhumane treatment of animals. Instead of just turning away and ignoring it, which is essentially what allows the stuff to continue, yeah. mm -hmm. we can instead turn towards it and say, how can we be more of a part of the system? How can we learn how to do the best for the environment and the economy and our bodies and our health and the animals that we can and still be a part of this cycle. And so that's really kind of what I'm passionate about, what I like to talk about. And also I just want people to be as healthy and nourished as they can be. And I think that eating organ meats is a vital part of that. So I'm trying to, you know, in a not scary way, uh, open up that conversation for people. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense. It's a and good philosophy. And is, I mean, the foods are very nutrient dense too. Absolutely. So it's, yeah. it's really educational. And if you listen, if you work clinically and taught and, you know, evaluated people for their nutritional adequacy, and then you just do something simple, like introduce organ meats, it's amazing. I know the clinical improvement that yeah. you see in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's like you said, it's sort of like the best bang for your buck nutritionally. So even if you're somebody who is sort of a reluctant meat eater, like you, you kind of subscribe to this less, but better, um, idea instead of, I want to eat a 12 ounce steak every day. The best thing to do is to go towards organ meats, which are so nutrient dense that yeah. you can eat less and get more out of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm all on board with that. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to say, well, we're going to talk a little bit about where people can find you in a second. But before we do that, there's one last question that I had for you. Um, this we, we didn't plan this or prep you for this. This is what we call the fireball <laughs> question. Oh, great. We Thanks, do this in every guys. interview. It's supposed to catch you off guard. And uh, so we, we certainly know the, the benefits and uh, all the all the things, all the wonderful things about eating organ meats and understand that. We also want to know, do you have a least favorite organ meat? to hmm. eat. <laughs> uh, I love this. I love this question. Um, and I, I love the idea of the like, okay, we'll prep you, but not for this one thing. So you better get ready. I need to start doing this for my own podcast. That's right. That's right. I, yeah. I, I kind of love catching people off guard. That's great. Um, so I do, I will say that I do have a least favorite and I am not kind of, I don't feel any guilt talking about this because another thing that I want people to know with the book is that you don't have to love eating every part of every animal. You don't have to love every single thing that you eat. You don't have to eat every uh, organ meat. But mm -hmm. what I want to do is just encourage people to open their minds to things that are new mm -hmm. and to not necessarily look at something new or different as negative. Like we, that's sort of an, an inherited trait from our ancestors that I don't like is this idea of like different is scary, right? Unfamiliar right. is scary. And so you think, okay, I've never eaten an organ meat before and it looks kind of different and it's weird. So gross, bad. I don't want to touch it. Right. I right. want people to have this idea of, okay, that's different and weird. Like I'm excited. Like, give me some of that. Let me try it. Mm -hmm. Because that enables you to um, open your mind, possibly have new experiences, possibly learn. And if you don't like it, you're right back where you started. You haven't lost anything. Right, but if you right, do right. like it, you've opened <laughs> up this whole new thing. So it's like such a low risk way to to have new experiences and expand your your life and your mind and your health. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that was a different rant. But right. as far as <laughs> organs that I don't like, gonna be honest with you guys, All right. not not a big fan of 
kidney. kidney. <laughs> I knew Not you were going to say that. I knew it. Yeah. I saw it on, so, I saw you on Instagram trying to figure out how yes. to cook it. <laughs> yes. So like a lot of people, but, but also I'll say like the, the most challenging organ that most people talk about is liver because liver is the one that people are the most familiar with. Yeah. It's right. the one that most people grew up and somebody made them some like really terrible liver and onions and they're still traumatized by it. <laughs> um, and I, I love liver. Like I enjoy the tape taste of liver. I think that it's, it's got a strong, but very kind of appealing and also very nourishing taste. Like when I eat liver, I feel like I am, I have some secret ingredient that no one else has. That's like making me supercharged. So Mm -hmm. like, I love everything about liver. Um, I know people who can't stomach liver at all. And they're like, yeah, kidney's pretty good. I can, I can get on board with kidney. (laughs) So so much of it depends on your personal kind of interest and feeling, but Kidney is a stronger flavor, certainly. Like, I think it's a stronger flavor than um, liver. And there are things you can do to um, minimize that. Like, there's, and, and in the book, I go into every part of the animal from their health benefits to how you can prepare it, how you can cook it, all of these things so people can really get a handle on it before they dive into the recipes. But for kidney, like you can do things like soaking them in milk for a while, and you can do different kinds of like breading and and mixing and chopping and and cream sauces and all kinds of things. Like, you know how, you know, parents across the world hide their vegetables, (laughs) whatever, you know, it's like the same thing. Um, but kidney, you know, I've made a couple recipes that I'm, I'm okay with. I am pretty proud of them that are in the book, but it's Mm -hmm. never going to be my favorite. Like if, (laughs) if, you know, if that was the only, if that was the only organ meat I could have, I would, um, I'd have it sparingly, (laughs) I'd have it sparingly, but, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, yeah. But I make up for it with how much liver I eat. So we're good. Good. That's great. Well, Ashley, this has been so much fun and we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And you want to, encourage everyone in the audience to follow Ashley on Instagram. We both follow her at the muscle maven or at your website, ashleyvanhouten.com. And to, to check out your book, it takes guts. We're totally going to try some of these recipes, Michael, you know this, right? That's absolutely (laughs) true. And I need to hear what you think. Oh, okay. Okay. For sure. sure. (laughs) But Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. It was so fun. Thank you. Thank you for your time. This has been super fun. Awesome. Have you ever had organ meats, Michael? I have, yeah, several times. Like uh, mostly liver. Hmm. Uh, I don't think I've, I've never had heart or tongue or anything like well, that. Well, don't you think we should go out and get Ashley's book and try some of these recipes? Well, yeah, I absolutely think we should do that. I mean, as you know, they're fairly nutrient-dense. Let's see how delicious they are. I've had kidney before, too, but I'm interested in trying it with some of her recipes. I've had kidney beans. Does that count? Nope. Oh. Next time on The Lab Report, Patty, what are we doing? Um, it depends. <laughs> what? I'm out of here. <laughs> You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. Don't they sometimes call organ meats sweetbreads? Yeah, they do. Uh, Are they sweet? I haven't eaten enough of them. Organ meats? I don't think of them as sweet, so I don't understand the entomology of the word. (laughs) The etymology. Entomology is the study of bugs, Michael. What did I say? Right.